do you have that bucket list destination that you've always dreamt of traveling to? If you go to a workshop, typically, there's a, quite a lot of education that goes on. And really, I use that as a way to get in cheaper than if I was going to do it myself. If you have that one thing that you want, I would do a workshop. Whether it's a tour or a workshop, you're investing a lot of money. So you want to make sure you're getting to the, the right place at the right time with the right people. Before such a trip, sleep for two or three days. Because <laughs> if we get there and the light's good and things are moving, then it's, it's game on. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. For this week's show, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Guys, I've been watching the Weather Network, and you have moved, whether you like it or not, to the Arctic this week, it looks like. Did I see minus 50 with wind chill? Yeah, I think so. Up in the uh, Yellowstone area of Wyoming, it was very cold. It was, I think, 30 below Fahrenheit without the wind chill, and then with any wind at all at that temperature, it's going to feel like 50, 60 below. Yeah, it's it's been our first sustained cold spell, I think, of the winter, really. We've had one or two days where it's gotten below zero, but this has gone on now for almost a week. So we can't whine and complain too much because it's been really mild. It's the first one in like four years <laughs> right. for Denver. Yeah. Last was, night broke a record in Denver. We were minus nine, I think, and the record for March, that day in March was mi minus three. So it blew it away, which is good. Yeah. So who's been skating? Nobody? Not me. Uh, you I've sent, been doing nothing but office work. You sent that picture on Instagram of that glacier in Alaska that was frozen beautifully. Wasn't that cool? Deal skating rink. Ice hockey. I don't know how rink. that works. I just don't. I mean, it's got to be a weather conditions to blow all the snow off and then just have that pristine ice. But it was pretty awesome. It's rare. I, I think uh, if you go to Instagram, I think the guy's handle is Tasker Tasker, T-A-S-K-E-R. I think I don't know. I just found him somewhere and started following him. And he must be a local up around Girdwood or something. And he takes a drone out to the Cook Inlet a lot, and he's definitely got it down for winter photography up there. Well, it looked like there were quite a few people out there skating on it too, living it up. Yep, winter wonderland style. I can remember when I was a kid, my grandparents lived on a lake and it, like you say it's a rare situation when it freezes perfectly flat and without snow and you just get the odd little bit of snow but you can navigate around it and it was you know half a mile across beautiful or even further maybe just so much fun and you could see through the ice you know it could be two or three feet thick but you can uh, it's just a unique experience worth doing but rare for march right I think that happens a lot in uh, Alberta, doesn't it? I see quite a few pictures where you see p people taking pictures of, you know, there's just so much water up there and they'll take pictures to the ice and you see the bubbles and frozen bubbles. The methane bubbles that freeze. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, which is cool. A lot of landscape photographers love those in the foreground of their images. And it's been super cold in Alberta this week, too. I've seen Joe, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago. He put up uh, a vlog this week where he was out filming and talking about insulated gloves that he was using. Right? Oh, no, they were charge gloves with wiring to warm yep 
and he was explaining it was minus 35 and they were out looking for wildlife but I could certainly hear the snow crunching under his boots cold week for March I was thinking about the the hand warmers on the cheeks thing at one point did we ever I didn't that? I have not I have not done it it but works. I did contemplate it. It works. Trust <laughs> me. I think we, well, I think I talked about it. I think we did. Podcast. And I know I put it up on our Instagram feed as a story for a short period of time. And I know I look goofy, but it works. So in this situation, what Ron is describing, I was filming late November in northern Alberta. And I was in a blind with my camera equipment and I had a balaclava on. In fact, I had two balaclavas on for layering. It was so cold. But the little hand warmers that you'd shake and stow in your mitts, your gloves that last for six or eight hours. It's funny how those things, you know, they take about half an hour to warm up. And then they, a lot of them seem mediocre for a while. By the time I'm ready to go home, they're like blazing hot. Anyway, <laughs> once you've got them fired up and going, I stick them in along my cheeks inside the balaclava or between the layers of balaclava depending on how hot they are and honestly since we lose so much heat from our head it buys me another two hours in the field than if i didn't have that and then i have one in each mitt and then you can also get the toe warmer ones and you can get the electric toe warmer socks as well but i just have the toe warmer ones that don't require shaking they've got an, an adhesive side to them and they stick them to the front of uh, on the bottom of your feet under your toes and they help with time in the field as well. So, so is that your tip? Yeah, it should be. It should be. <laughs> That's my bonus tip for this week. Yeah, well, well, we can squeeze it in and it's still suitable because the winter weather is still around for another week or two. It's going to change here quickly. It's cold here. Not as cold as it is where you guys are, surprisingly. But we're supposed to have warm weather arrive in about a week. I've been stuck at my desk, still editing. It is the season and will continue to be for a period of time. And it's my payback for all my trips in the field to get the images prepped and ready for market and out so that I can do more trips in the field. But yesterday, uh, Pilly, my wife and I, we went to Toronto and I did a presentation for the Toronto Field Naturalists and it was on my moose book. And it was a lot of fun, went really well. And it's, it was one of those situations, it was in a heated room and a lecture room at the university there so it was cool and it was great to meet new people who are so enthusiastic about wildlife so. hey before you go any further for all of our new listeners you should tell us about the moose book well it's a book because we haven't talked about it for a long time no and it's on it's on our website you can find it there at wild and exposed under the about page uh, or i think that's the easiest way to find it on there you can find it on any bookseller some a book that i did uh, it came out a year and a half ago, September 2017 was when it was released, and it is done exceptionally well, and I am very happy with this product. It's probably my favorite project of 25 years of work, as far as one piece of work, and it was it's a wonderful opportunity as a professional photographer to have a body of work, and that really means a lot to me, not just for the writing part, but the images after all these years, you know, we all work with so many different clients and we have pictures here and pictures there and they're up for a short period of time in a magazine or, or on a website or whatever. Whereas a body of work like this, it just has a longer shelf life. And it's something that is a more, really was 25 years of work. Most of the images are in the past five or six years, but due to requiring the behavioral images as well, there's some older ones in there, some slide scans that reproduce really well. 
publisher did a great job with it. Uh, won first place for the Outdoor Writers of Canada Book of the Year for uh, 2018. So yeah, it's done really well. It's uh, moose. If you like time. Mark's, if sorry, but if you like Mark's Instagram feed, you'll love the book. Yeah, there's some content overlapping there for sure. Some of the images. I've well, put on but Instagram. you got so many cool moose pictures, but you get to yeah, see yeah. them in a much larger format, so it's kind of cool. Larger format, the reproductions are phenomenal, and then there's a storyline along with it. So something I like to do when I write is to make it personal. And each chapter starts off with a story from the field, and a really amazing adventure in the field that happens somewhere that is related to the subject of that chapter. Um, the first chapter is an introductory story of a morning in moose country, and then we get into the ecology of moose, and then the four subspecies that roam across North America, the distributions and differences, then antler growth, the antler cycles, the next chapter, which is something that's phenomenal, but these ungulates and the fact that they grow these every year and the information behind that. And then of course, one of everybody's favorites, the rut, big chapter on that, just because of the amount of behavior that goes on and because of the, the habitat, the colors, the seasonality of the rut as well. And then conservation and future of moose. And then for our listeners, for this audience, the final chapter is photographing moose. Tips on that. So, yeah, it was it was a great project to be a part of, and it's done really well. And yeah, very happy with it. So I'm going around and I do talks on occasion when I'm asked to do so. And yesterday was one of those, and it was an opportunity to connect with a lot of people in Toronto and and introduce the book that way as well. Cool. So yeah, that the, the title awesome. is Moose Crown Giant of the Northern Wilderness, and it's on anywhere, but you go and buy books online or in bookstores. It's easy to find. We'll put a link on these show notes too, but it is, I think it's on our blog page and I think it's on that moose podcast we did with Vic. Oh, that's right. It's there yep. too. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's on that page. Right. It's sprinkled out throughout. It's just a, a good piece of work. So you, you need to get it out in front of as many people as possible. So we got it strung out everywhere. Awesome. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. So, uh, I had, I, I have this thing with Costco, right? I'm going to Costco every week because I got to pick up hard drives for, for all these projects we're working on. And the other day I walked in there and I found this little baby. It's kind of slow, but it's eight terabytes as a backup drive, and they had them for 125 bucks. They're my go-to. Huh? Really? This terabyte. style? Mm -hmm. exactly. Really? So what the reason I got excited about it is I've been working on a set of projects for one of our clients for probably two, since 2014, and we'll do two or three projects every year. And over the last couple of years, they're like, man, it'd be great if we could get all these projects on a set of drives. And I've just, I put it off because it's a monumental task to consolidate all this stuff. So I've ended up, I've bought 10 of these and that is barely holding those projects since 2014. So what is that? 80 terabytes. Holy so I spent all weekend just moving data. And I'll tell you what, I'm so ready for a new computer. I wish you, it's this, it's, you take what? Two terabytes. That's five, six hours to move. And then, you know, I got two computers doing it and I got moving stuff around. It's crazy, but not bad, not fast. I don't think you could do edit video off of these. But if you're just looking for a good place to store stuff, this was pretty cool. But that's what I've been doing all week. I haven't left this chair. Well, I go get coffee and a shower, and that's about it. <laughs> I was going to say something, but I thought it'd be rude. So, 
You can also get those in the Mac version, and usually they're 10 or $20 more, sometimes the same price. Not that it matters. You can format them when you plug them into your Mac if you're not PC, because I think the black ones are PC and the Mac ones are uh, white. So Mine come, this one came in both. It said it would do either, and okay. I didn't know. You know, if you know anything about hard drives, which I know about this much, my guess was is they probably put two four-terabyte drives in here and rated them. So when it when you get the drive, it comes with all this preloaded software. So I was a little scared about reformatting it and getting it reformatted as a RAID as opposed to one four terabyte drive and it could possibly not see the other four terabytes. So I started dumping stuff on there. I was like, whatever. The client uses PC and Mac. So I thought, oh, that's great. But then I went, I plugged this drive in on this machine that I'm talking on now. Then I thought, oh, you know, I want to start another one. So I'm going to move this drive over to the other computer. I plugged it in and it wouldn't allow me to do anything but read this drive on that other computer. I couldn't write to it. Hmm. And I already had like six terabytes on this drive. And then I thought, man, I'm going to have to, for 125 bucks, I'm willing to see if I can format this drive as a Mac drive. And I tried it and it worked. So what I've done with everything is I just, the minute I plug it in, I reformat it as a Mac drive. And then just use them as Mac, but it works yeah. works really good. And they'll read on a PC, so that's fine. Yeah. Cool. So that's all I've been doing all week. Not giving fun presentations about Moose books, but I've been working. What about you, Ron? What have you been up to? Unfortunately, I've been stuck inside, um, just at work. And then I had to shoot a uh, track meet for the local newspaper and newspaper in Casper. This last weekend was a state track meet and state indoor track meet. I better clarify since it was 30 below. Um, Wyoming kids are tough, but I don't think they're that tough. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I haven't had an opportunity to get out and do any wildlife, but I have done some quick editing. It's totally different when you're doing it for uh a newspaper, you don't have to be as critical. Your yeah, son did really I, well too, right? Why don't you yeah, plug that he out? A, he had a good meet. He, we, we were probably one of the three smallest schools at the, at the state meet, and those guys got second overall in their sprint medley relay, and so it was it was a pretty good accomplishment. They had a, had a rough start, or they they could have been in the running for first. They weren't that far behind, but. It was a good finish, good representation. And then, you know, he's coming off of two years with knee injuries. So this is really the first legitimate competition that he's had in in a couple years. And he he's starting to get things back and starting to get his, his speed back. So he did really well. I don't think I'll ever get my speed back. I guarantee you I will not. <laughs> you, how can I say this? <laughs> you guys are as fast as you're ever going to be right now for the rest That's of your true. lives. That's very true. Right? Rejoice in that moment. All right. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, I want to jump on the Costco thing quickly and just add, you mentioned you were at Costco for those hard drives. And we were talking about on our Travel Tips podcast about the possibility of renting vehicles through Costco, if you're a member. And I had looked it up. I was researching a trip and it, when I looked it up originally, it didn't seem to save that much. It was like $50. I've looked again because I've been procrastinating with 
booking the trip and it's now $130. Why has changed? No clue. Same dates, everything. But it's still not as low as we were told it would be by our friend and we're going to talk with him and, and hear how he got the $25 a day minivan rental if that's still even possible that was a year or so ago now maybe things have changed but it was now or is now for this trip that i was looking at it was 11 day minivan rental it was like 140 dollars less for the same company and it was through costco but various rental companies are offered and this was for budget so it was a known company well-known company so it was worth some savings so for those of you that are costco members like we talked about on the previous podcast check that out because you could save coffee for the whole trip and more. That's a one That's night important. in a hotel or yeah. a little cabin. Right. Or an eight terabyte Seagate high drive. That's right. <laughs> they had a limit of two on them. So I had to go in like four days to get, <laughs> get the different one. That's there's funny. That's a good audience. The skies hack. <laughs> <laughs> The 24-hour delay or disguise. Hack. That's right. Uh, That's right. Why do I have hats of all different colors? For that kind of scenario, I mean, looking different, coming and going. I've never had right. more than two at once, so I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm a little worried now. I've got this whole project backed up, man, and I have it all backed up, right? I've got it on, but it's spread out all over. Well, what five years worth? So now it's all consolidated and now I'm a little scared to send these drives off because then I will, if something happens to one of those drives, so now I'm thinking, do I need to dupe those drives? So do I need to go buy 10 more and dupe those drives just so I have a copy of the <clears throat> that week's worth of work that I've been moving stuff around? If we're following gonna, our own advice, yeah, you probably should. I think you're right. <laughs> you know, my luck would be they would get damaged in shipping or something dumb and then i'm thinking okay well maybe i should just get a uh some sort of raid but an 80 terabyte raid would be pretty expensive yeah that's not cheap we'll see if the client will pay for it even out there well, it'd be totally sweet to be able to pull all that data off of one drive so sandus you've got sorry ron you've got all that there still in house right it, in the office yeah it's just managing drives. it all so, that so it, i probably pulled everything onto eight drive or 10 drives from 30 different drives right so it's just that time of pulling and matching up and consolidating and making sure all the data is there and but if, if drive four fails for them then you know what's on drive four and you just have to send that one again kind of thing you could just log that yeah to save doing it all in duplicates I mean, you've got them on the hard drive, obviously, but to do a, a duplicate set, I know it's a little bit of paperwork, but. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. It's a lot of time. No doubt. I was amazed. Took took all week. You've been busy? It's a lot of shooting. Busy, busy. And while I was doing it, I bought an extra one for here, mm -hmm. and I call it, if you can see, podcast media. Oh. Hey, there so you as go. we start doing, so this is anything that we've shot on video, the three of us. Any of the projects, it's just all in one place. That was another thing is I've got all that spread out. And when you want to, when you're excited about a project, you want to get on it, right? But you don't want to spend half a day trying to track down all the things. So as I ran across stuff, I just started throwing it on one draft. But you've got another one, Podcast Media 2, backup, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to. 
It's nonstop. I mean, you start thinking about all this stuff, and we have terabytes. I probably have 120, 100, well, 140 terabytes worth of stuff that I have to manage, and it's just everywhere. And but years it's from now, part of the game. will be so small. Won't even I know, yeah. right? Well, and if you go back to the old, the way we store all of our stuff is on these raw drives. And when I first started that little process, they were three terabytes, was as big as you could get. And now I'm buying six and seven and eight terabyte drives. So that's yeah, what, that's what I was just going to say is uh, Seagate. This, I think, just this last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago, announced a twelve terabyte. It's a their pro drive, so it's built a lot more solid, but it's a seventy two hundred rpm it's it's pretty fast they announced it or they're actually out no it's out yeah hmm. i wonder i'll check and see I think it's I think uh see how much more barracuda or something it wasn't i think it was like 500 bucks oh so a lot more for the somewhere memory. in there it's it's pretty significant yeah but that'd be worth it you know i don't know if we talked about it on our last podcast either but we were doing a job down in florida i guess it doesn't matter where we, where we were at but i was shooting Stuff on where you needed to take your own Perrier, right? Sparkling <laughs> yeah, water, right. yes. Did we talk about this? Not, did, not, I don't think where you're going. So, our my the data person, the person I took down there to manage all the data, did we talk about that? No. She was using a new computer, a new Mac, and the year or the project before, she used my computer. And the time, the difference in the new computer and the old computer is. It's significant enough for me to say, yeah, it's time to go get a new computer. This one is, I think, four years old. But the amount of data that she was able to transfer and the time that she was able to transfer it compared to what would it be on my computer, it, she probably saved half. So a new computer is definitely in my future because that's time is money, right? Yep. Wow. That makes sense. I think mine's six years old. Well, I keep waiting because Mac keeps saying we're going to come out with a new one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think yours is maybe mine's older. Mine, maybe mine's a 2013. So that would be six years old. And now I don't have anything that has that new USB-C. And that is much faster. So. Well, that could be, yeah, too. That's right. I mean, you have you priced out one when you load it up with all the RAM yeah. you can get in speed? About six thousand, right? For a laptop. A few more gray whiskers when you read that. But I priced out an iMac Pro. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was twelve thousand. <laughs> all all decked oh. out. But I need something to run eight K footage, and they say it'll do it. So that'd be kind of cool. And edit but, the photos for you. Just would that hit, be sweet? Boom. Push a button, photos edited. I'm in for that. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's Adobe's talking about it. AI, artificial intelligence, and their editing software. You could just tell it what you want it to do. Whiten teeth, click it, boom, it goes whitens everybody's teeth for you. Every, every so moose needs white teeth. Every beaver needs white teeth. <laughs> uh, you know, it's time that our desktops catch up. I, the smartphones and tablets to me, photo editing on those, it's images I take on those is such a joy compared to diving into Photoshop and all, all the elements I'm playing with in there from a raw image to a high res JPEG to delivery. So yeah, I, it's got to get caught up. 
to me is too slow. But you guys know that because I described mm-hmm. my workflow at one point and you both rolled your eyes to the point. I think it hurt. So <laughs> but the smartphones, really, when you're doing Instagram or anything like that, social media, when I pull an image out of my album and I want to tweak it a bit as far as any settings, whether it's brightness or contrast or or saturation, it's seconds to do it in Instagram or any of the apps, efficient apps. I just do it in the Instagram app. And yeah, amazing. We should be able to do that with all our raw pictures just easy. I want a touch screen with sliders. Boom, the four sliders I use, done. A little save button touch in the top, or maybe even just voice. Please save as TIFF and high-res JPEG and low-res JPEG watermarked. How far off can that be? We just say that. I'm tired of typing, yeah, too. Far. I'm not going to be a complainer today, but I don't want to type anymore. I just want to <laughs> dictate. I don't want to keep bringing this up, Mark, but <laughs> if you go, if you start using Lightroom, you create your own preset, things that you do to every Too image. So many variables, so, so, so many different Here we go. It's just going to be like the glossy and matte photo finish. Come on, Ron. <laughs> go ahead. You just sync them all. They're all. They all have that preset on them, and then you go back and make your critical adjustments, because you know there's there's things that you do to every image, and now you can set it to do that while it's importing those images. That's all done, and then you start to do your critical edits. But they're not all the same. I mean, but you could certainly do a batch, no. right? But as the light yeah. switches, so if you go from a overcast afternoon to a rich evening light, it's different. So you would simply batch those for sure separately. So then you, yeah. yep. Then you go back, fine tune one of those in the sequence, and then you just sync all of them. Isn't when you have similar light, you just together. do it all in the batch. Right. Yeah. But you're still going to end up tweaking each one just a little. You bit. are. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Everything. But you're going to save time. You're going to probably save a third of your time. Well, I would be, say that would be sweet. It would be significant. It would you, be. Because if you're working for three months, that's one month that you have free. Exactly. Yeah. And I could be out shooting or, or maybe on a vacation or something, you know, heaven <laughs> forbid. What? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, if I, yeah, let's, let's talk more. Next time we're in the same physical space, we'll get like a little bench sheet in front of the same computer and I can sit down with one of you guys, like, you know, right beside you. And you can teach me some of that stuff. Well, what we should do is just take one day of your shooting. Right. You know, if we're out shooting and just just take one morning or one card and just do it with one card and then we can compare. Cool. We could do that and maybe we could capture some of that on video and share it with our audience on just how we're doing that, like a little tutorial. Yeah. Right. Cool. That'd be cool. We're always learning and with the software always changing and technology, we got to keep up with it and make it most efficient. And I might be a little behind in my perfection world here, which leads me to this week's pro tip. Can I jump into pro tips? Are we ready for a pro tip? Let's do it. All right. So I was asked on Instagram from a direct message from somebody who wanted to know how to sell their work on a professional or serious level. And I don't know this person, so I don't know their history as far as how long they've been taking pictures. I did look at their social media or their Instagram page and and kind of eyed that up. But basically, there's so many directions to go in, and it depends on the target market. The first thing about selling images is quality. 
So it's a matter of identifying the target market, whether it's a print market, whether it's an art gallery market, whether it's a magazine market, whether it's an online market, whether you're matching up writing and creating a whole piece together with writing and imagery and telling a story. All of these things need to be considered before you can decide what you need to present. But fundamentally, it has to be, any imagery has to be at least as good or better than what's already out there in order to compete. Otherwise, there's no point. So as far as what to present, so if you have a client, you have somebody you're excited about working with, it's a matter of approaching them. I would suggest in today's age, used to be a cold call on the phone, but that was old school. It's still effective because you can develop a rapport with the photo editor. But I would recommend before that happens to send an email. And with the email, send a selection, a limited selection, let's say a dozen images that outline your, what you're approaching them to do. And the images should be JPEG, always a JPEG file when communicating with people. In this situation, it should be a low res JPEG that should have metadata with all your information in it as far as your name and copyright and keywords. And it should be a 72 DPI JPEG one to 2,000 pixels wide or tall, and so it's low res, but it will look great on a computer screen. Computer screens are 72 DPI, so that's all that you need to put, not 300 DPI like to print, because this is just show and tell. This is just impressing them. So you pick 10 or 12 of your favorite images for what you're proposing. You want to work with this publication, for instance, and you send it with a nice, friendly introductory email. The other thing with the low res images is you want them all to be watermarked. And it's not so much a concern about where they're going to go because most of these clients that you're approaching, now I don't know who it is exactly you're approaching, so I can't guarantee this by any stretch, but most are ethical and would never do anything with images submitted just to see for a potential project. But why it's important to watermark is it reminds them whose photo that is. So if they end up working with you down the road and they're keeping these folders of images, they all have different workflow strategies. They may not put all of Steve or Brenda's photos in, in one folder, they may put all of their bare photos in one fo folder. And when they look at them, they keep seeing Brenda's and it's like, wow, Brenda's are great. And it's her, your watermark is your whole name, your business name. So there's that mental connection that grows the relationship. So low res, send 10 or 12 with an introductory proposal email and what you do. Now here's the next step is you you need to be able to back that up with more work if the relationship, if the door opens and there's a possibility to develop a working relationship. So do not get ahead of yourself and when you have a dozen phenomenal images, try to initiate a business relationship. You need a lot of depth of a quality portfolio for this to work. And so don't rush it, build a portfolio, a lot of different lighting situations, a lot of different dramatic light, different colors, seasonality, whatever you need to tell a breadth of story, whether it's for a geographic location, maybe you film in Wyoming all the time or Alaska or Newfoundland and you want to tell about that. It's got to be a deep portfolio because once you establish a relationship and if everything goes so well, they're going to come back for more and you need to be able to deliver more or else that could be the end of the relationship. Patience is a big deal too and not to do this too often. So as far as these emails, send it out. Don't follow up for a few weeks. Let it rest. 
and then follow up a few weeks later just to confirm the email was received if you didn't get a reply. And then if there's a relationship starts, then every month or so, it's good to reconnect and show new work. Do you guys, I agree. Do you guys have anything to add on that as far as selling? I mean, the same thing goes as training, training an eye. Sorry to jump onto another subject, but if you're doing an art gallery and you want to have your work in this gallery, go in and see what the curator's style is and train your eye and, and pick the images from your portfolio that are close to that. And it's the same with the publication. Um, various editors have preferred image styles and some like something as simple as for a cover image they prefer animals looking straight into the camera others do not and others prefer prefer more of an environmental portrait for a cover sometimes so look at your prospective client and look at the history over the past year or two and what's been successful and try to emulate that and then improve on it and diversify from that. Those are my recommendations. But I have to caution and say that, you know, in this landscape, selling images as a professional, it is an incredible challenge. It's hard work. It takes dedication. It takes passion. It takes um, being a nice person is important too. I know a lot of great photographers who just have never been able to market their work um, because of a chip on their shoulder or some of the ego that they might carry along with that. But at the same time, it's important to have enough confidence in your work to stand up for a fee too, and make sure that you're paid for your work because you spent the time, you've created this great product and sure it's great to see it in print and a photo credit there, but if it's good enough to print, it's good enough to be paid for as well to support your ongoing efforts so you can continue with your photography. And I would, the other thing that I would say is you see a lot of images on Instagram and they, they're great images, but if you ask and, and people are proud of them, a lot of people comment, a lot of likes, that kind of thing. And, but if you ask, they're severely cropped. And so you've got to understand. Sorry, did you say cropped or cropped with an O? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you have to understand that, that is not going to be a printable image in all likelihood. And so understand that getting it right in camera becomes it more and more and more important. Um, if you're, if you're going to try to get into that market and the image that you present, you're going to have to be able to replicate exactly what you have in that digital format, you know, so color correction becomes important. A lot of different variables that Mark didn't get into, but are all, part of the process as well there's a lot of things that you could talk about with that it could it could be its own podcast probably exactly. but yeah no it could be and and uh, something maybe down the road we can do and i'm glad you added those elements but it could keep going for sure there are a lot of different levels to to being a successful professional photographer whether it's the work it's the marketing ability there's there's yeah a lot to it and the image quality is it's not just what you see, but you're right. It has to stand up for the reproduction. And that's something too, as yeah. far as cropping, you know, I avoid doing it to any significant extent because my clients, you know, they could ask for a quarter page magazine. Okay. That's no big deal. Any image is going to be able to handle that. They could come back and say, you know, we love that image so much. We're going to do it on our advertising campaign for our trade shows this year. We want it to be eight feet by 10 feet. It's like, well, I, that's a much bigger sale, right? 
monetarily because it's a bigger use. So it's, I want that image to work and never want to be the person to say, no, no, it's not good enough. Sorry, do you want another image? You know what their answer is. So yeah, always the best and, mm -hmm. and file size is important, of course. So if you get a bite and whoever you approach to potentially sell an image just to, and then there's the whole licensing stuff. Oh, gee, there's so many things. But, you know, make sure then you can back it up with a high-res JPEG for delivery in an efficient manner. And you want to also outline, again, it depends on the relationship of the particular sale, but something in this business from the get-go, terminology-wise, and is just to always say that it's for one-time non-exclusive use. So that's for that specific application they're purchasing it for, unless the agreement's for something else. There are all kinds of different approaches. Somebody could say they want to license it for two years for four different applications. That's different. But if it's just for one time for this, then that terminology should be in the invoice for the pricing one-time non-exclusive use. And that's by far, like 99% of the time, the most common sale. Unless, again, if you're selling prints, that's a whole other market, too. I think there is, like, I got three or four things that I could throw in there, but I think we should do a whole podcast on that because there's so much to it, you know, selling your images. Just right. the three or four things that I could add would add another 20 minutes to the discussion if we all started talking about it. So, And I'm sure there's a bunch of people out there that want to know. I mean, it's not, there's no golden ticket that gets you there but it's a lot of hard work but the there's images. a lot of little tricks along the way right yep the images do and the marketing does but you're right and and there are so many people i think that's a big hurdle in the business is we i mean i had a mentor who helped me learn the business side of photography not only did he teach me composition and more importantly light but the business side selling stuff and i talked about this on a podcast a year ago kind of thing was like when i started it was slide film, and with slides, you had one, usually, that was way better than the rest of that series, that photo shoot, that morning, that opportunity, that behavior. And I didn't want to send one out. You have to courier it. It could get damaged. Is Will the publishing house handle it properly? Some, most did, uh, but the odd time things happened. And I said to this friend of mine, I said, I don't want to send these out. And he said, well, then don't do it, and don't be a photographer. <laughs> Forget about it. You're either going to sell your right. work or you're not. Just learning the, the ropes of the business. And that was applicable to si slides. Now people have the, the amazing benefit of having digital. You know, there's no limit. You just back, make sure you've got your images backed up. But it's a matter of just sending out the image. But being digital, it's important to know that when you're sending out queries, that they're always low resolution and watermarked so that it helps protect that way too, especially if it's somebody you're not totally familiar with. But most, most publishing houses are very ethical and rarely is there a problem that way. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's so many levels. But I think our listeners, for those that are interested in this, it would be insightful to hear you know, more of it because who, who tells them unless they find somebody who is a professional who's willing to share some of that. And we're definitely willing to share some of that. And I see people yeah. too. Here's here's another thing, and I don't want to go on this too long. And I know, but the whole photo contest world. I mean, some of them are definitely worth interesting and can definitely boost a photographer's reputation if they win. As well, there are those photo contests when you read the fine print that are very ethical and simply state that they're going to do a tour or a show with the winning images, a physical show, an online show. It's all mapped out what they're going to do with them. But 
there are also those photo contests that collect when the images are submitted state in the fine print that the images become copyright or owned by the company they're submitted to or if it doesn't say that they might say they can use them for any application they want in perpetuity and so just to be aware of reading the fine print and knowing what anybody's submitting to because you know it may be the best polar bear shot of a lifetime for them and they may win the photo contest and it may end up being used 25 times by whoever ran this photo contest with no payment to the photographer and that's if it's good enough to win a photo contest there will be applications where it can generate revenue for the person that took it and again there are photo contests that are definitely worth researching and and applying to and submitting to but just read the fine print and know what's going on before submitting images and I see so many uh, serious amateur photographers who would like to be professionals doing this uh, submitting to some of these photo contests and they get their images used and it's in a product and they're pleased with it but there's been no payment and so it doesn't help them uh, perpetuate and grow their portfolio or continue with their craft I'm gonna close there but this that was my pro tip of the week just to get some insight into selling images but it is it is a challenging field and an incredibly diverse field so again could be a whole podcast There's <laughs> yeah a lot. Markets, if right? people want to hear more they should just yeah. dm us on instagram or send us a, a right. note on the website and if we get enough interest let's just right. do it because like i say i've got for every comment you make i could add too and sure. you know i just don't want it to be the whole podcast for this one but i think we can do it yeah. Or we should do yep. it. There's a lot For of sure. potential. It's just a matter of researching it and finding it and choosing it and following your gut on, on the on the amounts and the sales as well, but the dollar amounts. All right, guys, what's your pro tip for this week's? Ron, podcast? what's yours? Well, it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about. I mean, loosely. Um, I switched computer systems here six months ago or so five months ago or so, um, maybe a little bit more, but I'm going back and I'm trying to find, because I had everything on drives that I used on PCs. I've switched to Mac. Um, for the most part, I've been happy with that. But one of the things that's been frustrating is recataloging all my images because I had a pretty good system on the PC, but when I switched everything over, I can no longer write to those PC drives. So I've got most of it transferred over to drives that I have for my Mac. So I've got most of it cataloged, but going along with kind of what we've been talking about, getting the images ready to ship off for, for stock and uh, assignments from Missy when I need them. Um, it's been frustrating because I find myself being disorganized at this point. So that's why the other day I was researching those uh, new Seagate drives because I'm kind of contemplating getting four of those and putting them in a putting them in a RAID because I can have everything there. Um, I can have the you know the drive that I'm working on and then I have a couple redundant backups for that. So if one of them ever slips, I can just slide the next one to the top, get another one to replace the bottom, and off we go again. So staying organized is also going to help you with, with what 
you know, Mark's been talking about, uh, because if somebody calls for a specific species or specific time period, specific behavior, you've got all those things cataloged. You just go into Lightroom, Photoshop, whatever, search your keywords, and it should be there. So you should have it in that group. So staying stay organized with your files, I think, is something that we probably haven't talked about enough. And if we, yeah, in the future, we'll uh, we'll discuss in detail workflow, and, and that'll be one of the things that we we'll have to talk about it as well. To channel your inner librarian. Indeed. Yeah, find your own Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick question. I'm curious. When you took those PC drives and you copied yep. the read-only on the Mac, so you've got right. to copy them. Yep. You copy them onto a Mac drive, then couldn't you just access all the same information and get up and go? So, yes and no. What didn't come over, and I, I don't know why yet. So when you use Lightroom, it's you're not destroying any pixels. Lightroom is non-destructive when you edit. So what it does is it carries a little file. It's kind of a sidebar side file. Car. It's sidecar file. It's called an XMP file. And what happened is those XMP files didn't get carried over. So what I've found is when I go back, I'm having to re-edit a lot of things that I've already done, so, which I should not have to do. Do you know how to fix that? Do you save the metadata every time you make a correction? If so you hit Command-S in Lightroom, that should create those XM XMP files. Well, when I have the way that I have it stored is, um, or when I export, as soon as I export, then it saves... You go in the export menu, and I can save the XMP file with the raw file, and then I have the JPEG that had all the changes made. That's what it did on the PC. But when I'm when I'm bringing those files over from PC to Mac, and I copied them over into that new drive, the XMP drive or files didn't come through. But I think that's something that I should have you show me. Um, Sometime when we have, when we get together with Mark and we go through the Lightroom tutorial, <laughs> that's one thing that I'll that I'll definitely have you show me because that's been frustrating. Shouldn't have to be redoing all yeah, that. Yeah, you shouldn't have to do it again. But when you, Although, when you plug those, sorry, when you plug those two drives into your system, you've got the PC drive, you've got the Mac drive. They're both USB plugged in, and you hit cop, copy off the PC, paste the XMP. Yep. Do not come through. You copy the no. folder. Or the individual items. What if you open the folder and just copy all into the? Well, I think the issue may be that I'm opening it in Lightroom, so it's bringing the RAWs in, but it's not bringing the XMP in. So that may be something that I didn't when I reloaded Lightroom on my Mac. That might be something that I didn't have checked. So that's what I've kind of been looking for is to see if you know there's something in the way that I'm bringing them back in or re-importing them that's causing that XMP file not to come with it. Um, so I have I have been looking at that. If you copy one and just to the drive without even opening Lightroom and then populate Lightroom from the new drive. Yeah, and that's that where I've been it. missing them. That should do it. I mean, you should be able to, and you should just add it, not re, you know, there's copy, what is it, copy, move, or add in Lightroom. Mm -hmm. You should just always add. 
from the location where it's going to reside. From the new. So one. I think what you were yeah. just saying with those drives, what you ought to do, what we do, is we have a 32 terabyte RAID array that has nothing but our stills on it. And so when we get back from a shoot, stills go there, they get copied there without ever touching Lightroom. And then yeah. once they're on that drive, then we add them. Then you start working. Yeah. But if I've done it from, so if I'm doing a job somewhere and I'm shooting all these raws and I'm editing in the field just because the client wants to see some stuff right away, I don't want to re-edit when I get back. So yeah. if I hit Command S when I'm in library mode on Lightroom, mm -hmm. it'll save those XMPs. Then when I get back here, I transfer the XMP and the, the raw image to the drive and then I re-add it to Lightroom and every all my changes are there. Rating, changes, copyright, all that stuff. Yep. See, and I, yeah, I'll have to have you look at it because I there's no reason that it shouldn't be coming through. Right. But I would say get a big drive, like you're saying. I was just yep. looking yep. in this whole hard drive thing. You can get a GTEC 32 terabyte RAID for 23 mm -hmm. or 2400 bucks. And then just use these other drives as your backup of that main, big main drive, and you should be yeah. good. I'm going to have to bite the bullet and do it, but that's two trips to Alaska, so it's it's a tough pill to swallow. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's crazy how much money you it's can spend. It's hard, right, because you can get the Seagate 8 terabyte, like you said, was $120. So how do yeah. you do that? How do you commit to the RAID? I've a, This week, I said to Pilly, we've got to get a RAID system just for that s simplicity. It saves time. Where is what, you know? and Everything's in one place. But it's hard. You have to spend. It's it all goes back to time. Versus you know, it's the time. Hundred and some. Yep. The... Yep. And you say you think so. I have, I've had a raid go out where one drive goes out, and you think, oh, I'll just pop another drive in there. Well, you could pop another drive in there, but it's going to take about thirty hours to rebuild that, or it did on mine. So it's not like you're back up and running by just popping another drive in. And then a lot of these raids are really finicky about the drives that you're putting in. You can't just throw in some you can Drobo, the Drobo style drives. You can throw in any drive and it'll see it and it can be different sizes, but some of them are very finicky and it has to be the exact same drive with the exact same manufacturer. And then when you rebuild it, it's anywhere from 15 to 30 hours to rebuild that whole structure. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. There's big benefits to it. And then there's time, there's a big time investment in the very beginning. But I think if you if it all works right, over time you're saving time that ends up being worth money. Exactly. Yep. So I I have a question. It's off topic a little bit, but it's about <laughs> this computer stuff. And we've gotta to get to the main segment soon. But I have this power bank for my, my desktop Mac that's supposed to give me six hours of use if we lose power. If we lose hydro, mm -hmm. we get six hours in there. So that happened last week. Windstorm, power went out for an hour. This blasted battery pack thing with the, so it's got, I think, four on one side, four on the other plugins, and it's the size of a football. The four on the one side connect to the battery in the interior and will keep running. So the computer, monitors, everything's still going. Power's out, I'm happy. But the thing drove me nuts. It went beep, beep. Yeah. the power was out and there was no switch i'm like okay yeah. i know the power is out the room's dark i want to keep editing but i don't if the power happened to stay out for the next five hours and i was going to keep working because this battery is supposed to last six i don't want to sit there for five hours with earplugs in beep 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 do you right. do you have 
a, pa- a power. I don't think you're gonna you're gonna get one that doesn't do that. Why do we? <clears throat> those aren't really intended to go for six hours. That's They're... intended to go for six hours in an emergency. Right. And it, it I an guarantee emergency. you, it's... I'm editing pictures. <laughs> so in that situation, you need a generator. You need a generator I that you plug generator. into that. That's what I would do. And then your beeping's gonna stop. But You'd have to plug that into that. It's you know you go out. It's got to run an extension cord. It's outside. It's it's yep. running gas. Yep. Why well, yeah, can't... but get a big extension cord and yeah, take it and put it a block away. Cord, but why why can't this battery pack that's supposed so, to allow you to keep working in the, in an emergency? Why do we need to hear the beeping? We know the power's out. They're just made to allow you to shut stuff down and not lose yep. anything. Exactly. It's not made to work from. It's just made to give you the time it takes to shut everything down that, that beeping is telling you to save what you're working on and and go take a nap and and go it says six hours i want to keep working this is this is in the middle of a work day i'm editing i can i can keep working sending stuff to clients all but it's beep 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 yeah, you gotta saying. you so gotta that, just hook up your generator to it you can buy an uninterrupted power supply that would do that but it's right. gonna it's just like these hard drives are buying a raid You've got to buy one that is intentionally designed to run your computers with no power. So that would be something that would be triple or quadruple the price of what you paid for this. I paid $80 exactly. for it. And I guarantee you ain't going to run it for six hours, especially no, if you're running monitors and stuff. Right. It's yeah. going to be 45 minutes There's at the most. Monitors. Oh, come on. Really? I, fi- I figured I'd lose yeah. an hour or two. Really? It's going to. No. Yeah, I don't. That beeping's there to annoy you to shut you down so you don't try to do it. So what you have beeps the same. I was, I think I just, I, I assumed I had a cheap model and it was as annoying as all heck and I needed to upgrade, but they all do this, you're saying. I don't know if they all do that. But all the, I, the ones I buy, ones. I buy the big ones and the nice ones and they actually have a readout and they'll tell you how much power is left based on the demand. Okay. But I still don't rely on dollars. But I would say just go get your generator going. If you if you got to work for six hours, just fire it up and it's, get a big long extension cord and go to town. Well, it's just a matter of convenience, you know. I, I always appreciate a break, and if the power's out and I'm forced to take a break, I'll do it. But if <laughs> if I'm on a deadline and I want to work on images, if I can invest a little bit, in this case, eighty dollars, that would give me a few hours of working to finish my job. No, you're going to spend five hundred bucks, and then it's kind of like it's kind of like those photo contests you're always talking about. Oh, no. You got to read the fine, read the fine print. Right <laughs> I did right on the box. Six hours, it said. Six hours. Oh, that's, that's the big fine print. That's, that's the big read, print. That's the big. Read print. the inside of the box, right. not the so outside. Be warned. Be ready for beeping and get off. Just shut later. it down. Turn it off. Go have a. My tie. My <laughs> what? Sorry, what is that? No, okay. Umbrella. Have an umbrella drink. Yeah, have an umbrella All right. drink. All right. Okay. <laughs> Michael, pro tip for this I don't know. podcast. Do we need a pro tip? We we've, should probably get right into it. We're throwing a lot in there. Let's let's move on. Unless you, unless yeah, you want to. I can right? throw. No, I can wait till next week. Mine's good. Mine's evergreen, so I can throw it in next week. I love that evergreen. And we've we've we, we've actually covered more than two pro tips so far. So yeah, sure. Yeah, we can go. Ahead we've already it. done half a podcast. This is fun. All right. <laughs> so this week's question of the week, again, comes from a follower on Instagram. Thank you. We appreciate the questions. Whenever we do, receive them and we answer them all as best we can and feature one as question of the week. This week's a photographer wanted to find out what we would recommend for a good tripod for hiking and field work 
for wildlife photography. And I want to expand that a little bit and just try to include something for video because I think nowadays it's a marriage. We want to, our cameras are capable of doing very good video. So we want a system where we can do both. So what do you guys think? So for tripods, I mean, I'm, I'm tripod-less for the most part, shooting stills, right? I've got my Getsu 410. I've got my studio ball head. Uh, really right stuff is that's old. My stuff is old. I would have really right stuff now if I was going to get something. Um, what would you guys recommend for tripods? Because you're using them more than I, and I'm going to take notes on this one because I am looking for a, sm a small tripod to hike up for the doll sheep or to hike in caribou country so that when I want to switch to video, I've got something I can use that will be effective, but not weigh me down. Mike, I think this is, this is your wheelhouse because you're, you're on a tripod most of the time. I I'm the same way as you, Mark. I've got, I've got a carbon fiber. Um, but Mike saw me struggling with the joint, uh, this fall because it's, it's not really right stuff. Um, it's a, it's a good, solid, stable tr platform to shoot from, but the joints have kind of worn out. And so I have to, I have to doctor them up quite often. Um, but I am not on a tripod nearly as much as I used to be. Um, if, if I'm in a blind or if I, I know I'm going to be in the same spot, I'll, I'll throw it on a tripod, spread the legs out. So the tripod's supporting the weight the whole time, and I can lean forward and shoot when I'm ready to shoot. But I know Mike, especially with the video, you're you're on a tripod always out of necessity. Yeah, and I think there's a valid point to be made. If you're going to shoot video at all, you just should you shouldn't go with the ball head at all. You should get some sort of video fluid head, and that'll work for both, right? So it'll work for. But what you the key is is you have to have some sort of leveling base on that video head because that's yeah. essentially what you get out of a ball head is you can get to level pretty quick and not have your tripod be level so as long as you get a some sort of tripod head that has that leveling ability and then it's fluid motion and then it's purchased based on the weight that you're going to put on it that's the number one thing i mean I, we've all talked for years and year, when we all used to use tripods everybody what everybody goes spend what ten thousand bucks on a six hundred f4 and then they'd spend fifty bucks on a tripod and then they wonder why they were getting you know crappy images you got to spend the money on a tripod it's just you if you're gonna use it spend the money get a good one it's gonna be as much as if not more than some of your lenses that you have but it should last you forever so there's Sackler there's Miller there's cartoni there's uh, probably three or four other really nice high-end video heads. And then I think when you're talking about the legs, you want something that doesn't have a center column because as wildlife, we all preach, right? You want to get eye level. So if you're shooting ducks on a pond, you want to be laying on the pond bank and they'd be at water level if possible. So you just got to watch a tripod that'll allow you to spread the legs all the way out so it'll go all the way flat to the ground. And that's kind of hard because when you have a video head that has a leveler on it, it has to have some sort of post on the bottom that allows you to loosen it to get the level. So you're going to lose probably six inches no matter what. But six inches off the ground, another six inches for the video head and probably another four inches to the to the viewfinder, you're still going to be 20 inches or 
between 10 and 16 inches off the ground, but it's still lower than most people are ever going to go. So that's what I would say. I would, I, you know, Gitzo really right stuff makes a really nice tripod and I would go for carbon fiber because mm-hmm. weight, and then just depending on your weight limit of your camera, you got your weight limit of what you want to carry into the woods, but then you got your load capacity or the weight of the camera that you're going to use, which should dictate which tripod you're going to buy. So when I go out, if I'm going to buy a tripod head, video head for the red camera system with the 200 to 400 lens on there, that whole thing, I don't even know what it weighs, 25 pounds. That video head is going to cost me between seven and 10,000 bucks just for the head. And then the legs, you better have some pretty beefy legs because that's a lot of weight and you don't want to have to babysit that, that all the time. So, but you can, if you're just shooting, uh, the, the, what you guys use, if you use the 200 to 500 with a, a DSLR body on it, that video head, you could probably get for less than 1500 bucks. If yeah. you're going with video and kind of the, the rule of thumb, it's kind of like the one over 10 rule for, you know, if you're shooting at 500 millimeter, you should be shooting at at least 500th of a second. Um, the rule of thumb for tripods that I've heard is you want to have one that's rated for at least double what your double what your setup's going to be, and that includes the ball head, your lens, your you know any other additional support that you have to have on there, um, and your your camera lens combination. So keep that in mind. If you see one that's rated 50 pounds, and you think yeah I don't I don't have anywhere near 50 pounds of gear, you want to have double the rating to make sure that you're getting good stability. So the and, bigger and the for, lens, the more magnification, yeah. the, you know, you'll get yeah. that shake. And if you have a big healthy tripod, it's going to take that shake out. Yep. But you know, it's a balancing act because how much do you want to pack into the woods too? Right. Yeah, so you exactly. just got to kind of figure out what's going to work. Now, the other thing that I've done with all of my stuff is I've switched to the Arca Swiss. So a lot of tripods will come with video heads will come with their own mount to the top of the tripod. What I do is I take their, their quick release plate and I screw on an Arca Swiss quick release clamp. And then I can use the Arca Swiss plates that I have on every camera, every lens, video and stills, and then I'm set up. So that same tripod works for everything. So you have a little bit of money in that too, because you got to buy plates for everything, and then you got to have those little clamps that you can attach to that quick release, quick release plate. But it works out great. It works out fantastic. It just takes a little bit of time to get it all figured out and what you should get. So if you look at the, I think Sackler makes a DV6 and a DV8 and a DV10 and a DV12. I would start there. And when we interviewed the guy at Really Right Stuff on one of our earlier podcasts, he said they were coming out with video. He was pretty excited about some of the video stuff that they're coming out with. Yeah. If he comes out with the video head, I would get that one. It's going to be a little spendy, but it's going to be worth it, and it'll last forever, and he'll back it up. So if you ever had a problem with it, Really Right Stuff would fix it. So if that stuff's out, I haven't checked, that's where I would go. But you're going to – a decent tripod is going to add – 10 pounds to your kit backpack or your kit. So you just got to keep that in mind. And then as long as it levels, you've got your ball head right there. Tom Engelson, who I shoot with every occasionally, he started years and years and years ago shooting film and he started with a video tripod, right? 
he never switched to a ball head. He still shoots a video tripod, even when he's shooting stills. It's all in what you get used to. The ball heads were way more effective for most of us that were just shooting stills throughout the 90s and early 2000s, just because they were way faster than a, a video head. But it's what you get used to. You'll get used to it really quick and it'll work. It works just the same as a ball head once you get it level. Right. Nowadays, you want to be able to do both. You need to, you, know, you want to take the video. Tell you should. There's yeah. So many platforms we can use video on. So, you know, yep. I honestly, I'd prefer the ball head. That's what I've always had. But when it comes to the video, it, it doesn't make sense to go that route. So, well, along those lines, and the reason why it doesn't go along, doesn't work is you need that fluid motion. And if you watch any really quality video production, there's no jerking in your pans. There's those tilts that the other thing that annoys me when I don't have the right size of tripod, like if I just set up really quick and I grabbed the wrong one, I got the smaller one and I wanted the bigger one. If you can't balance right on that tripod head, sometimes it'll be front heavy. And then that means you have to sit there and hold the tripod to keep it steady, right? you're going to add shake into your shot guaranteed. And if you're using a long lens, you're just going to see that movement. So what you want to do is you want to be able to have it perfectly balanced and be able to pull your hands away and let that camera just stay level. So it doesn't fall forward or fall backward. So just keep that in mind too. When you're looking for a, a head, it needs to be balanced so that you don't have to deal with these issues of constantly holding onto that tripod. Cause when you get a nice static scene, you just want to set it and walk away. But you don't want to have to tighten things down. You just want to set it and have enough drag built in where it doesn't slowly fall forward or fall backward. Or And then the same on your pans. You could do a whole podcast on that too because I could show you how I operate those tripod heads just to get the best fluid motion. You don't do it with a handle ever. But that's a whole other subject. Let's try to remember to do that when we get together in the field on a blog. For you. Yeah, that'd yeah, be perfect. Sure. You could yep. do it in five minutes. Yeah, that's a good one. Make note of that. Good answers. All right. So this week's podcast, the main <laughs> subject we're getting to now is do you have that bucket list destination that you've always dreamt of traveling to? Today, we're going to break down some tactics on the best ways to find the photo tour or workshop of your dreams. Guys, I have a whole list of tips and insights how do you want to do this? So just throw I think I think it's important, first of all, because you, you kind of made a distinction between the two when you said yes. tour or workshop. So it's yes. important that we define the two. Uh, a tour would be you're going to hire someone to basically get you to a location where you've got the species that you want to photograph, but they aren't necessarily giving you any advice. They're not giving you any education on how to photograph or, or even how to photograph that species necessarily. A lot of people that lead photo tours, they're right there shooting with you. And so they aren't necessarily as concerned with you getting good images. You know, that's not fair to make that generalization, but that's not the focus. If you go to a workshop, typically, there's a, quite a lot of education that goes on in a workshop. And generally, that workshop leader is going to do whatever they have to do to make sure that you get the best shots that you can get while you're there. So what I would say, if you're looking at a tour, you know, look at the images that, that 
that you have the potential to get, but know that you might not get the help you need to get those images. If you need to have that assistance, if you're if you're a newer photographer, there's nothing wrong with that. You go into a location you want to maximize um, the opportunity that you have, then I would definitely look at a workshop. And I would look at a workshop with somebody that already has that portfolio because they're not going to be as preoccupied. Uh, yes. With, with taking their own shots and getting their own images. So I think that's very important. You know, if I'm going to go shoot moose, I'm going to look at a guy like Mark Raycroft, who's got every possible moose image that he can ever hope to have and understand that, you know, he's not going to be as concerned with getting images as he is about maybe maximizing my time. That That's kind of what, the way that I would look at it. Mark doesn't do moose workshops at this point in time. Not saying that's yeah. outside the realm of possibility, but, but that, you know, that is definitely something that I would look at. Uh, if I'm looking at doing a workshop, I want to find somebody that's, you know, they've got everything that they would ever need. So they're going to be able to spend the time with me and whoever else might be there. But that, the other me, thing with the workshop is they will have, Oftentimes, at the end of the day, you'll get together in a room and everybody will show images and you get instruction at that point, too, which is kind of cool. Little Whereas a tour, yep. you're probably going to go sit by a fire and drink a beer or have conversation with everybody. So it's not as instructional. So I think that is a good distinction. That was a good description. Mm -hmm. And sometimes on tours, I mean, it depends on the guide. There can be some instruction, but you can't necessarily count on it unless you ask beforehand and clearly know that's going to occur. And it can't, you should not assume that there'll be instruction on a tour. So, yeah, it's very important at the beginning of this discussion to differentiate those two photo tours and photo workshops. And of course, uh, when you're searching out these dream destinations and, and the trip of a lifetime that you want to do, you can certainly look for both of these and ask questions about that. Something I, I've come up with is make sure that when you're researching a destination, you know, whether it's Africa, Antarctica, the Yukon, whatever it might be where you want to go and you're researching, once again, you've decided you are comfortable with a tour and the parameters of a tour or you prefer a workshop with more instruction. Knowing that out of the gate, spend time online and researching and keep in mind when you're looking at things online, that's the best eye candy that's being presented. So keep an open mind. Don't set your expectations too high. Those are the best results over many trips to these destinations that you're seeing. They're certainly obtainable, but you have to keep that in mind that there's so many variables on these tours um, when you're researching and be aware of that. Another thing is to make sure when you are looking into any given company is to look for reviews and read those and Google them. Don't just look at them on their website. Google the company name and reviews and, and see what comes up and read up on that. Also be aware, I mean, of, of there's so many things when considering a tour that you have to pause, take a step back and think about, you know, your own limitations physically what you want to do, your own comfort level, depending on what the tour is offering, the accommodations, the foods available, the, uh, the meals, are they all provided? Are they all 
you know, cooked by a chef or are you in a, in a canvas tent? Where, where are you and what is your dream trip for nature and wildlife photography? And the duration factors into that. There can be workshops that you could sign up for for one afternoon in the Rockies by an instructor to learn about the species that is of interest and how to photograph them and how to best use your equipment for that. Or it could end up being a week photo tour somewhere longer to the Arctic. So all of these things can make for a very different experience. I would say like the tour, the bad thing about tours is a lot of times you don't get the time. A tour is a tour. You're going to go out and see, like if they say you're going to see 10 species, but you really only care about one of them, you might get a 10th of that time to, to film or photograph that one species. So if you're just out there trying to fulfill a, destination and you don't care and you want to get all these species but you don't have a lot of time with them you may not get that perfect shot you're going to get to see them all but you don't get the time that you want whereas with the workshop a lot of times <clears throat> i don't think i've ever really done the workshop or or a tour i've done a workshop with barrett when we go to lake clark that's essentially a workshop but we're going for one thing we're going for bears and that's all we're going to photograph that whole time and really, I use that as a way to get in cheaper than if I was going to do it myself. If you're going with a group of people, the workshop is the way to go to that destination because you can't drive to it. You can't boat to it. There's limited accommodations when you get there. So oftentimes a workshop is the best way to get to a particular location. And that was the, but I knew that if we're there for five days, it's five days and nothing but bears. So I'm going to probably get what I want to get. And it's a very loose workshop. That's the other thing is you're dependent on your instructor and depending on the ability of everybody that's on that workshop, that will kind of dictate what you're going to get out of the workshop. We go, we tend to go with the same people every time and everybody knows what everybody can do. And there's not a lot of chatter. There's not a lot of instruction because we all know what we're doing. We're just all there to get really good shots of some particular subject. So I would say those are the two distinctions too, is workshops are probably going to get you, if you have that one thing that you want, I would do a workshop. And group size is important, right? When you think about group, workshops or tours. Group size and group makeup. I mean, you know, the, the point that Mike just made about maximizing your time on a species. So if it is a tour, if you're with, you know, a group of, of strangers, so to speak, everybody might have that different species that they want to focus on. And so the, the tour leader has to weigh that out. If you go with a group of like-minded individuals or you, you know, if you're going to go on a photo tour, if you can get three or four people that sign up with you, uh, a lot of times, you know, that makes for a lot better dynamic. It still doesn't mean that you're going to get to do whatever you want to do on the tour necessarily the group leader is still going to make that call but at least if if he knows that there's four or five people interested in one species that's that's where they're going to focus efforts and and give you that opportunity for the majority of the group so that's something to keep in mind but again you can't you can't always do that i mean it's not always practical and the other you know when you're researching as you were talking about earlier mark I'm never, you know, I haven't done a lot of these, but I haven't been afraid to ask the group leader for, you know, they'll always put a few uh, reviews on their website, but they put the 
the shiniest review. It's kind of like the shiniest images. They'll put the shiniest reviews on the website. Don't be afraid to ask them to talk to a few people that have gone in the past. You know, they'll give you an email. You can make contact and no guarantee that person's going to spend the time to talk to you, but it's always helpful to try to research it as much as possible so that you know what to expect because a lot of these, whether it's a tour or a workshop, you're investing a lot of money. So you want to make sure you're getting to the, the right place at the right time with the right people. And I, th I think those are all things to, to add into that research element that you were talking about. And if, if there's a specific guide that a person has their heart set on accompanying on a tour or a workshop, to make sure to clearly ask that the time that they're signing up for, that that guide will be there because that's not always the case. You know, it's sometimes loosely described that this person is leading it um, and then they find out that someone else is doing it for that week. So clearly ask for that up front. And something else is to be prepared. I mean, not just the parameters. So the kind of workshops or tours I envision, I mean, there's a certain niche that I could cater to. And if I was thinking of caribou or moose or something like that, you know, you would want to make sure the people were comfortable with what that trip was about. If they're on the ground, is it a camping trip and hiking the tundra and being prepared to, when the weather cooperated and the light cooperated, to be prepared to work hard at it. They're there. Mm -hmm. They've taken this time out of their life. It's a, it's a potentially a trip of a lifetime. They want to come away with results. They want to be dedicated to work hard at it and something to think about is that make sure that before such a trip sleep for two or three days because <laughs> if we get there and the light's good and things are moving then it's it's game on and we're going to do the best to maximize it the whole group right and again group size is something that depends on destination it's something to be very aware of when booking any tour or workshop to make sure it's fitting your expectations but you know something that i've seen again and again or read and i haven't led any tours or workshops yet um, nor have i been on them but i know of many colleagues that lead them and i know many people who have done them but there's a great piece of advice is to rest beforehand get lots of sleep because it's you're there to live it up every day you can and you know, there may be an opportunity. Think about our trip in the Northern Rockies last year, our first one, our segment of podcast, we did four, the day length's long there, you know, and if it's pouring rain, you get a break. You might get to have a nap or something. At that time of year, it's not dark till 11 p.m. at night. You want to work the good light. You've got to be ready to go and it can become tiring, but it's worth the hard work and effort on these photo workshops and tours to make the most of it. So just be prepared for that for your own benefit, what you come away with. Another thing is to, no matter where you are, sh take that social media stuff. As much fun as it is when we're at home sitting on the couch, park it, you know, take, take your selfies on the tundra or in Antarctica with the penguin, you know, to document your trip, but park it and just be there in the moment on these tours and workshops. It's a destination that you've craved. You've wanted to be at, be there because as we've talked about in so many other different ways before you never know what's going to happen something magical could happen right then don't worry about the social media or any of that connection be in the moment 
for this you know limited period of time and take it all in breathe it in and and you know that's another thing is pick the right destinations for that what you dream to do prepare for it you know a lot of people it's a great incentive to get fit knowing that they're going to go on mm-hmm. trips like this it's something that keeps me that way in my young age i've got to keep fit <laughs> so i want to do caribou again this year right i want to be able to hike for sheep it's something that i'm cognizant of come springtime it's hard in the winter i tell you with editing it's hard He's, but come spring sounds like pirate it's It's hard it's hard (laughs) i gotta walk i gotta do things to build stamina again build endurance and booking a trip like this is wonderful incentive to be in shape which is an all round i mean it helps our mindset and who we are in so many ways so um and it's something to look forward to it's, it's funny, you know, when you book a trip like this, now whether it's a workshop or a tour or just a, a destination that we're going to, it's something that lightens the load for months ahead of time. We know what's coming. We're excited about this vacation. We're preparing for this vacation. So uh, keep mm-hmm. that in mind. Another thing, too, is, you know, to make sure you read the, the insurance and, and the liability waivers and all that fun stuff. What you can use a workshop for or a tour for, too, is that oftentimes gets you acquainted with an area. It's it. the best. Is that it? That was it. That's the best way to go figure it out. I mean, because a lot of these places are hard to figure out. And if you can go with someone that knows, do it. Don't expect to get much. Just expect to learn, and maybe you'll get some good stuff. But then you can either bank it for next year because now you have some knowledge, or you come back a week later. It just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But tours and workshops are oftentimes really good spots for that, or good times or good activities to just build that knowledge base mm-hmm. guaranteed to learn it's a new destination a new place uh, different species open mind again you know be there and enjoy yep. the moment stay positive you know even if if it's not working right then this rain for two days you don't know what the next day has in store just be in the moment but you can learn so much about a destination and potentially depending on its accessibility do it in the future yourself or with a friend or two as well. It's a good way to research. I know of people who have done tours for that very reason. Yep. We used to, if we had a spot where we wanted to go and either there wasn't a workshop or tour opportunity, what we used to do is we would get a group of people that were all like-minded, want to do the same thing. We're all about the same fitness level. You know, we would say, okay, we want to go here. Oftentimes we would try to hire a guide when we got there. So we would, it's not necessarily a workshop or a tour, but we have this like-minded group that wants to photograph the same thing. An example was we wanted to go in the back country at Katmai. We didn't want to go to Katmai where the falls and all the people, and we wanted to be in the back country, but, and there's tons of bears back there, but you don't know that's where that, that bear guy got eaten, you know, um, Treadwell, Timothy Treadwell. You don't know these bears. You don't know what their temperament is. But we found a guy that would do tours through float planes, you know, daily tours, and he kind of understood those bears. So we hired him to go with us for a week and camp with us. And you think, oh, that's way out of but It wasn't that. It didn't cost that much because we were spreading the amount. Everybody spread the cost. So maybe you're spending 20 or 30 bucks per person to have that person out with you. But we were way more comfortable with these bears because he knew who, what these bears were. He's like, oh, yeah, we're cool here. These bears are fine. 
you know, and I think that's another way to, it's not necessarily a tour or a workshop, but it's a way to kind of create your own and have some sort of peace of mind. That's smart. Yeah. There's, mm -hmm. there's a place that I'd love for our podcast to go. I mean, there's so many, but in, uh, in Labrador and it's, there are polar bears around there, but I know somebody who lives up there who, who works as a guide up there. It would be the same kind of thing. So we could go and hire him for the week or 10 days. But the thing is, he knows the land. He knows where to go and where the right. vistas are and, and you know, mm -hmm. that kind of situation, that local knowledge. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a formal tour or workshop, but it's another way to approach these things. I'm glad you brought that up. It's another option. Right. Um, but definitely, I mean, for the, there's so many destinations. That it's a big business now for tours, right? So lot of opportunity for people to have amazing experiences out there just to do the research mm -hmm. and be careful what they're booking and look for reference at all levels people that have whether been before. it's if they know friends that yeah. they trust that have had that experience and will recommend it i mean that's the best because you actually know who the reference is too right yeah so it i guess um in the springtime one of the one of the things that I have a lot of is, uh, well, two species that I have a lot of are the grouse and the swift fox. So I have people asking me all the time to go out, and I do tours slash workshops. It depends on the level of the photographer. The one thing is that we go to private land that I have the only access to. So because, well, because of what you guys were talking about earlier, um, I don't want people researching locations and then bringing big groups of people back because these are sensitive species and it depends honestly on the group of people that I'm taking in there, whether or not we photograph from the vehicle or we uh, are on the ground in blinds. Uh, and when I'm with friends, with people that I trust, with people that I know, uh, we'll ghillie suit up and, and we'll go kind of sit, get in there nice and early sit a little bit closer to where the luck is. But if I'm with uh, another group, we'll be a little further back. And if we're not in a vehicle, then we are in a photo blind. Um, and just so that we don't uh, disturb the birds or disturb the den, you know, if it's a swift fox. And, you know, we'll talk a lot on the way out about behavior. We'll talk about the kind of shots that you're going to want to get, you know, the where you're going to want to position yourselves, how you're going to want to observe these birds, what kind of behaviors that they have, if if they're it looks like they're getting alerted, that kind of thing, so that when people see this, they're not surprised, number one. Number two, when they see certain behaviors, they just stop moving completely. And that's the kind of thing that you want to ask if you're looking for a tour guide, that you want to ask those references. You know, are you are you out in the good light? Because there's a lot of places in Africa that you can't even go out um, until a certain time in the morning. And so you've basically missed the golden hour. You missed the good light. And you have to be back out of those places, you know, before the good light in the evening. So is that even a possibility? I'm, You know, the amount of money that you're going to have to spend to go to Africa, I'm not going to spend that money if I don't know that I can be out there when the light's good. Yeah. I had that happen in Goro Goro Crater. You can't go in there. You can, but like me, I didn't know. We hired a, we didn't do a full on tour. We just hired a guide to go with us. 
mm-hmm. and they don't open the gate until I don't remember what it was, eight o'clock. So you don't even get down there until eight o'clock, you know, or get on the road to go down there till eight o'clock. Same in yeah. the Serengeti. They have gates. You wouldn't think this, right? Being, you know, unless you're there, you don't know. They open the gates to the Serengeti at a certain time. So we had to wait. So, yeah, I think there's all that kind of stuff that you need to keep in mind. And when I say use it as an opportunity to go learn, you know, that is in certain areas. Like with what you're doing, yeah, you yeah. can't do that because you're on private ground and you just can't. There's no access. So that's the benefit of going on a workshop or tour with you is you get that access. That's what you're, that's part of what you're paying for is your, right. your expertise, but also that access to that area. So yeah. and understand that yeah, I'm asking you for money, but I also have to pay those landowners for that access as well. Right. So there, there's a lot of costs associated with, with doing tours plus insurance, um, insurance, access, gas, you know, vehicle damage potentially. So there's a hey, lot of, <laughs> potentially there's a lot of costs involved. So it's, you know, that person is not necessarily making every penny that you pay them. Oh, for they, sure. They're forking some of that out as well. And so those are, you know, uh, I guess, I don't know if we're ready to throw this out there, but we're looking at doing some workshops and tours with the podcast. We've got some announcements that'll be coming up here one of them potentially very soon. Mark's ready to go. He's out. Uh, one of them potentially coming up very soon, and it'll be a very limited opportunity. Um, and then another one that will be coming up in 2021, just because of what we are going to have to do, what we are doing now, in trying to ensure we've got all the logistics taken care of to do this to do this workshop. And it will definitely be a workshop, and it will definitely be and adventure and uh you know a kind of a bucket list opportunity for for folks so i'm hoping that those things come together and we can get them announced right away um what do we do you want to you can't do that (laughs) you can't put it out there i mean how many how many sitcoms have you watched where they say hey and then they stop you know tune in next week tune in next week Uh, i see what you're doing you're bringing people back teaser yeah. So the one, continued. the one this year, uh, we have not confirmed dates yet. But we are looking at taking a few people. It will be limited um, to Alaska to photograph marine mammals and potentially uh, some bears, depending on when we get the dates secured. I don't, I don't know for sure yet. But the the bears will be the potential. The marine, um, the marine mammals opportunities is. That's something that we will do. But again, this is, it's going to be limited. So if you are interested in this July, make sure it will be some at some point in July, make sure you email Mark Raycroft. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can email us at, at the wild and expose the, uh, the contact sheet on the website. If you're interested in doing something like that in July, because it will be first come first serve. But again, the details are not spelled out yet, so stand by. We're looking to have a lot of fun, and we just have to map it out. But time frame wise, right. we're, we're pretty close. And yeah. as far as yeah. expectations and experience, we've got that mapped out. And I'll tell you, I mean, after spending two weeks there last July, I had a ton of fun in the diversity of wildlife. And the bear stuff, that was awesome. That 
really was an experience. And they're both black bears and coastal brown bears. Kodiaks, brown bears. So, and just the scenery, the mountains, the weather, the here we go. The day length was a trip. <laughs> yeah, right at yeah. five, and by midnight, it's starting to get dark. So, I mean, we didn't go nonstop, but it just you just feel that much more alive with so much day length, too. I had, a, I had an awesome time. I can't wait to go back. It's a beautiful time to be there. We had no bugs of any consequence that at no. all in that time, and we were lucky. The weather was perfect. We had very little rain, knock on wood, uh, that trip, and had a lot of fun. And yeah, the marine mammal stuff. You did that before I got there, but had a lot of success with that too. So if we get it mapped out, we can we'll put it up on the wildandexposed.com website, our website, and have all the parameters there. But yeah, any, any interest would be appreciated for those that could be consider- seriously considering it for that time frame. Are we gonna? Yeah, don't come about- if you get seasick. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Or plan ahead of time to get the little, get the patch. <laughs> or make just, sure you bring that with you. Well, hold on. I shoot, don't you know can shoot. if I'm going to get can shoot. If I'm going to get seasick, I don't know. This is an experience. That's what Missy does. You're going to want to get the patch. <laughs> I'm going to hope for calm mornings, beautiful, <laughs> pristine glass water for reflections and and right. humpback whales. You never know. Orcas. Or orcas. Sea otters. Lots of sea otters. I'm flirting with this one. I I haven't decided, but it would be so doable and so much fun. And I know this region so well. Um, Would be is a trip to Newfoundland, Canada, for an amazing experience along the northern Atlantic coast, along the St. Lawrence Seaway with potentially moose and potentially incredible woodland caribou Uh, but the landscape there is just unbelievable the fjords the towns the fishing communities the lighthouses the rugged people the people Mm -hmm. the ah it's it's an all-round experience i will you know there's the viking village there and there's just so much so many levels to this trip it's not just about the wildlife but it's the culture it's just the vibe of the place is phenomenal and very unique. So I know I'm going to be there for a couple of weeks. So I was contemplating uh, making one of those weeks a tour slash workshop. I don't mind giving instructions and helping that way. And I am one of those guys who has a lot of the caribou and moose images. So um, that's something I'm willing to fit in as well. So it would depend on the interest. It's a phenomenal place, a unique place to visit. And I'm just contemplating whether or not to spend a week of my time there, sharing it with other like-minded people and making it kind of a combination of a tour and a workshop, but just immersing ourselves in the culture in that rugged, northern, amazing destination. Well, there'd be nobody better to go with. I mean, you know that area so well, and it's... Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast. It's kind of untouched, right? You know, it's Quiet. it's one of those places that's kind of fun to go because it's not overshot like Katmai or it's not overshot like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone. It's kind of a new spot, and it's not that hard to get there. I mean, you think of Newfoundland, and you think, oh, man, that just seems so far away, but it's not hard to get oh, there at all. Super easy. It's, so I'm thinking the second week of October – and it's super quiet. The accommodations are all there. And, and one of the destinations uh, would be cabins along the ocean. Who doesn't love that? 
And then the other another destination would be a motel in this small town that is, again, a stone's throw from the ocean. Amazing places. So it's very comfortable. It would be local cuisine and a lot of fun that way. And it's, <laughs> it can be awesome. Um, but it, And as far as accessibility, it's surprisingly easy. You can fly from anywhere in North America and go. We would launch out of Deer Lake is where I would meet people. And all kinds of airlines fly in there. It would probably have to sister in on Air Canada or something like that. But it's it's a international airport, easy, and then launch from there on on the adventure. So it's something I'm thinking about. So if people might be interested, that's could get in touch with me or us through the website, and we can uh, possibly map that out. If not for this fall, it could be for next fall. But I, I am planning to go this year, and just thinking about that as part of the trip because I will be there, and sharing it is only that much more fun. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll put. I guess the cat's out of the bag, right? So I could put up a little workshop uh, page on the site. And for right now, since the, we don't have anything solidified, we'll just kind of call a general kind of thing and then put an email, subscribe to you. And if you're interested in that trip, just let us know and then we'll get back to everybody. And then as soon as we dial it in with the Alaska Marine stuff and then when we dial in Newfoundland and then if you want to do something wrong up in Wyoming, we'll just dial all that in and people can choose based off of the trip. Sure. And for, and for Newfoundland too, it's something I want to add, sorry, is, is people, if they're not familiar, if you haven't listened to the podcast we did last fall, not that long ago, then to go back and listen to that, give some insight and some background on sort of what this place is like. Yep. First cricket. Yes. <laughs> Which is a caribou calf. Yes. <laughs> So as, as in, in less, yesterday's lecture, that, or presentation, sorry, that came up as well. So it's interesting. In Newfoundland, caribou, which we normally call in the Yukon and Northwest Territories or in Alaska, we call them bulls, cows, and calves. In Newfoundland, it's a stag, a doe, and a pricket with a P. I love Newfoundland. <laughs> it's so much fun. And I've been there numerous times. So it's uh, I've done work with tourism and, and just uh, enjoy being there. It, it's a great... Um, it's a soul food food kind of destination and experience, and the light can be dramatic. The coastal scenes can be dramatic. Dramatic. The winds can be fun and dramatic. Dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can. Great kite flying country for those that are into that, but we don't have time for that. All right. So, did you want to mention the other one, Ron? Before. Well, the other one is in very early stages, uh, and that one is, again is uh, in 2021. But we are looking to put a group together to go, and this is not going to be a a cheap trip. So one of the reasons that we went with dates in 2021, and it will be April of 2021, is because it is a spendy venture. And so we're going to have to allow people time to save their pennies, um, do a GoFundMe page, whatever the case may be, to to, uh, save enough money to go on this trip. But we will be going spending uh, nine days on a boat in the Arctic waters and we'll be photographing polar bears, Arctic fox, walrus, marine, other marine wildlife near uh, Svalbard, Norway. So that trip uh, is definitely one that you're going to have to save some pennies for, but I, the opportunities that are available there are definitely bucket list opportunities. I mean, 
the reason that we chose those dates is because the the potential to get polar bears on loose ice, get them jumping from ice to ice, uh, is very high. It, again, no guarantees they're wild, but that is is one thing that we'd like to get and uh, like to give others the opportunities to get. So that will be coming up. The details on that trip will be coming up very soon. In fact, here in a few days, well, a few days from now, it will air in a couple of weeks from this podcast, but we will actually have uh, Svein, Sven, I think is how you Fine. pronounce it. Fine. Svein. That's how it's spelled. I'm not sure how it's pronounced yet, but we will meet him. He's a great guy. I've visited with him several times on, uh, you know, just emailing back and forth. Super nice guy. He's got a fantastic portfolio of Arctic wildlife and uh, we'll be visiting with him on the podcast. So you'll be able to hear some of what the potential is for, for that trip. He captains the boat. He does not captain the boat. No, he is, uh, He's basically the guide. I see. Okay. Yeah. And he's a photographer himself. So he knows he's the local, but again, this is one of those things that's important to go with a photographer because he knows what you're looking for in terms of light, in terms of behavior, in terms of, you know, where we need to be to have the best opportunity. Um, we'll be on a boat the whole time. And then once we find uh, a subject that we want to photograph, will disembark and would we will be on zodiac rafts basically so that we can get on eye level with with the wildlife there so eye level with a polar bear on the water in the water uh, i i don't can't imagine any better opportunity and i'm i'm honestly excited about it even though it's two years away and the base boat has all the rooms and accommodations the meals everything's there it even has yeah. It, yeah, yeah, you're well taken care of. It even has a, a tavern on the map of the base boat. So, yeah, should you be so inclined. To talk about the day's adventures. Yep, exactly. Awesome. That's so that's the last one. I'm sure there'll be more, but that is the last of the three that we have in place right now. Right. Yeah, so, I definitely have seeds planted in my mind. I'd love to do uh, a caribou one with fall foliage as well but in the immediate mm -hmm. time frame as far as the yukon uh that's something i'd like to do but newfoundland offers a great variety of subject matter so that's just something that can be done sooner and and really would be truly a unique and wonderful experience but svalbard is another huge amazing opportunity on this planet for something unique yeah people to see and, and try and it honestly it'll be a good time mm -hmm. we Every trip that we've been on together, we've had, we've had quite a lot of fun. So I can honestly say there's no doubt there will be some laughs, so some good stories to go that's home. What it's all about is finding out ways okay, yep. to, do these, to do these trips or, or assignments that we get on and, and getting together and having fun. It's, uh, yeah, highlight. That's where all the editing pays off. Get the editing done, book all right. the trips. Good times, good friends. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing some of our insights on photo tours and workshops. As always, do your due diligence and thoroughly research all aspects of your travel plans. In closing, I'd like to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. 
I would also like to ask that no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, to make sure to click the follow or subscribe icon to stay up to date with our newest releases. It's free. And make sure to give us a positive review, that thumbs up or that five-star rating, as that allows us to continue to do what we love to do and to bring you these podcasts on a regular basis. Please spread the word of our show, and we invite you to share our wild and exposed Facebook content with your friends and family. You can see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, on our YouTube channel, and of course on our website at wildandexposed.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.